Transmission incoming, over. Copy that, transmission received. This is the Patriot Media Podcast, episode number one, formerly known as Libertarian Veterans Podcast. This episode is all about Johnson Island. It's a tiny island west of Hawaii, about 750 miles away. This island was home to U.S. military, nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons storage and testing. This island is basically a Chernobyl in the Pacific and is highly radioactive. Uh, We have stored nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, and biological weapons there, many of which have gone awry, exploded, leaked, and contaminated the entire island. This place is hell on earth, and I did this podcast after I did an interview with a man who was stationed on Johnson Island very briefly. I did a little research and I found out that Johnson Island stored something like 10% of the world's chemical and biological weapons at one point in time. It is where we stored all of the Agent Orange post-Vietnam War. Thousands of barrels were parked on the beach where they just leaked out into the sand. Um, Lots more stuff just like that. This place is crazy. You should listen to the entire show just to kind of get a feel for all of the insanity that is Johnson Island. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming back to the American Heritage Podcast. I have a new idea I want to share with you guys that I'm really excited about. I'm going to start doing what I call after action reports. That's where I take an interesting topic that comes up during one of my interviews, and then I dive really deep into it to give you guys the details. It can be anything and everything, so you never know what's going to happen. This first one is about Johnson Island. When I was talking to Dave, who on the last episode mentioned he was in the Army and spent time at a small place called Johnson Island. I had never heard of that island, but I was really interested in finding out why that when he landed on a C-130, everybody was in full mop gear. And if you're not familiar with mop gear, that is chem warfare suits. So it's a thick suit, rubber boots, rubber gloves, a gas mask. And these guys were in this when they got off the plane and doing mock exercises against an entrenched enemy who were also U.S. military members. I was interested into learning why exactly that they were in mop gear. And boy, did I find out. So stay tuned because this show is going to be pretty interesting if you're at all interested in military history. Johnson Island is a tiny little speck of sand located in the North Pacific. It is pretty far out there. It's 750 miles away from Hawaii. It is an atoll that consists of four different islands. Johnson Island, Sand Island, Aku, and Hakina Island. The last two were actually man-made, and they were created by coral dredging. So they bring in giant boats, they scoop up the seafloor, and then shoot it back out via massive cannons. Um, And then the sand accumulates, and they've basically just made an island out of nothing. 
The entire island structure went from 46 acres to 596 acres after some of this dredging. And the island's square space is only 2.67 square kilometers. The atoll was first discovered by a Boston-based ship called the Sally. It wasn't so much intentionally sought, but more discovered via shipwreck as the Sally ran aground on the edge of the largest island. Not much came of the discovery until Captain Charles Johnston of the British Royal Navy explored the area with his ship, the HMS Cornwallis, in 1807. The Guanu Act of 1856 allowed U.S. citizens to take control of the remote islands because they had heavy concentrations of guano. If you're not familiar with that, guano is bird and bat poop. Guano had several pre-industrial revolution uses, including soil conditioner, fungicide, and even cosmetics for women. Because birds are communal animals and tend to gather around together in groups, guano was a commodity that is available in large piles, as the birds would gather in one spot and then all defecate in the same spot. All European countries at the time sent out fleets of ships to remote islands where seagulls and other long-range birds might land, hoping to strike it it rich in the poop trade. In 1858, Johnson Island was claimed by the United States when the schooner Palestine, captained by William Parker, located a large guano deposit. After leaving the island, the native Hawaiians tore down the U.S. flag Parker had placed and replaced it with their own, renaming the island Kamala. The Palestine returned to Johnson Island on July 27, 1858, and again raised the flag of the United States. There was a brief back and forth as to who the proper owner of the atoll was, but ultimately, the guano deposit was gone by 1890, and the Kingdom of Hawaii was gone by 1893, when it was annexed by the United States government. This pretty much ended the debate over who owned Johnson Island. In 1923, the Department of Agriculture commissioned the first survey of the island, and the Navy dispatched the USS Whippoorwill to assist. The ship carried on its deck a D-2 float plane, which was lowered via crane onto the water. The plane would then take off from the ocean surface and conduct aerial mapping and surveillance of the island. The USS Tanger soon joined the Whippoorwill, and together, the two ships documented the atoll by both aerial and land mapping. Soon after, the same exact experiment was done at Wake Island, which, if you're familiar with that, it was a massive battle in World War II between the Japanese and the Americans. Executive Order 4467, signed by Calvert Coolidge, established Johnson Island as a reservation and federal bird refuge. The Department of Agriculture had no ships at its disposal, and as such, relied solely on the Navy for transportation to and from the island. The Navy saw the strategic benefit of the atoll, and then persuaded President Roosevelt to open further access for the Navy. In 1934, he did that very thing with Executive Order 6935 which gave control of the atoll to the Navy while still maintaining the caveat that the birds must be protected, and that duty would fall upon the Department of the Interior. President Roosevelt issued another order that allowed for the creation of the naval defense areas in the South Pacific. Johnson Island Atoll would become one such area. A three-mile area around the atoll would become sovereign territory of Johnson Island Naval Defense Sea Area, and this would continue for decades. All traffic in and out of the area was regulated by the Navy and is off-limits to anyone without written permission from the Secretary of the Navy for admittance. The island would continue this until 2004, at which point it would be handed over to the Air Force for, quote, plutonium cleanup purposes, unquote. Several presidents have since declared the island a national monument and thus off-limits, and also they have banned fishing within a 12 nautical mile radius. This was done under the guise of wildlife and fish protection, 
but I will lay out a case shortly as to why I think there's something a little more sinister and compelling going on that is the motivation for keeping people as far away from the atoll as possible. Since 1938, the atoll has primarily been under the control of the military, but it's between the Navy and the Air Force and a couple other Department of Defense agencies for various testing purposes. Several different organizations have taken over the island for brief periods of time to conduct nuclear weapons tests. From April 22nd to August 9th, 1958, the island belonged to Joint Task Force 7 to conduct Operation Hardtack. From 1963 to 1970, the Navy owned the island for use by Joint Task Force 8 in cooperation with the Atomic Energy Commission for testing of high-altitude nuclear missiles. In 1970, the Air Force had the island again, and in 1973, the Defense Special Weapons Agency took over the, the island under the umbrella and control of the Defense Nuclear Agency and Defense Threat Reduction Agency. This has been going on back and forth for a while, until ultimately in 2004, the Air Force got the island for good, at which point it was permanently closed. It seems like a lot of shuffling around for a tiny little piece of land, right? But surely there's more attractive places to do nuclear tests and things of that nature. So why is it that so many people want this island? Well, I'm going to lay out a case for you that is a little different. They don't necessarily want the island. It's just that the government keeps handing responsibility back between agencies, trying to figure out who is responsible for the cleanup of some of the things we're going to talk about in a little while. It's kind of a... Uh, a nuclear hot potato, so to speak, and whoever touched it last gets to keep it. The militarization of the island started in 1935 when the Navy made a seaplane base out of Sand Island by blasting away 3,600 feet of coral to make a smooth water landing for planes. The area was large enough for a half-squadron of seaplanes at the time. In 1939, the Navy sent civilians to increase the landing size of the waterway to accommodate more planes and men. Additional runways were built to house a full squadron and a barracks that housed up to 400 men. There was a mess hall, an underground hospital, water tanks, and a 100-foot control tower. In 1941, an airfield was constructed and a 4,000-foot runway added to Johnson Island with barracks enough to house 800 men. Construction was completed by December 7, 1941, which, coincidentally, was the same day as Pearl Harbor. During World War II, the base was used as a submarine refueling point and a temporary stopping point for B-29 bombers on their way to other bases in the South Pacific. One such B-29 was the famous Enola Gay, which would go on to drop an atom bomb on Japan in 1945. By 1944, traffic increased on the island so much that it became the busiest terminal in the Pacific Ocean, and there were enough troops and planes going back and forth to Japan that over 1,300 B-29 and B-24 bombers made a stop on Johnson Island in 1947 alone. After the war, the island was opened up to civilian air traffic, which is with as many as three flights a day arriving at Johnson Island, on their way to other Micronesian islands. With each arrival, the Army would surround the planes with armed soldiers and direct all passengers to stay on the plane. They would refuel the plane and it would take off immediately. No one was ever allowed to exit the planes. Evidently, there was some reason for the Army to have a lot of secrecy involved with this island that they didn't want anybody knowing about. So we'll talk a little bit more about some of those later. In 1970, the plans for chemical storage were enacted and Johnson Island would become a major storage facility for um, nuclear missiles, chemical weapons, and biological weapons. 
Also by 1970, all missile tests were stopped. The only exceptions to this rule was in 1975 when two launches of satellites took off from Johnson Island. As fate would have it, Johnson Island would play a critical role in the defeat of Japan in 1945. As the Japanese launched an attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the USS Indianapolis was away from its home port in Pearl Harbor en route to Johnson Island for a simulated bombardment of the atoll. The USS Indianapolis would later go on to carry the atom bomb deep within its hole on a mission to deliver the atom bomb to Saipan, where it would then be loaded on the B-29 in Olegay. Unfortunately, the USS Indianapolis would meet a disastrous fate after completing its mission when it was sunk by a Japanese torpedo. The men who survived the attack were left to fight off massive schools of shark for days before being rescued. Who knew that such an unassuming island would play such a critical role in the bombing of Japan, thus ending the war and saving an estimated 1 million lives? The island did this by temporarily housing both the Enola Gay and the USS Indianapolis. And if the USS Indianapolis had not been at Johnson Island, it would most likely have been attacked and probably sunk while stationed in Pearl Harbor. On December 25, 1941, the atoll was shelled by a Japanese submarine, which had taken part in the attack on Pearl Harbor just days earlier. The coastal guns returned fire and drove the sub underwater, but not before suffering some serious damage to the power station. There were, however, no lives lost. The Coast Guard was given a grant in 1952 for the implementation of the Loran stations on Sand Island. Loran stands for Long Range Aid to Navigation and was the precursor to GPS. It worked like transmitting radio signals from extremely tall towers in a similar fashion to how 4G and 5G towers transmit cell phone signals. This was used to help ships navigate the waters over long ranges in the Pacific Ocean. The military used Johnson Island as a nuclear test site between 1958 and 1975, and they did atmospheric and outer space nuclear explosion tests. The operation was used to test missiles that would set off 3.8 megaton hydrogen bombs in the upper atmosphere. This operation was known as Operation Hardtack. Additional testing took place where the military would launch 124 sounding rockets that reached an altitude of 720 miles in the atmosphere. These rockets were scientific data gathering rockets and used to calibrate and develop guidance systems in nuclear missiles and anti-satellite technology. Soon after that, the U.S. Air Force tested eight Thor missiles in an operation that was called Operation Fishbowl. These missiles were also extreme altitude missiles and were the precursor to Starfish Prime, which was a high altitude test resulting in an EMP, or electromagnetic pulse, that would briefly wipe out communications and electronics 750 miles away in Hawaii and resulted in several minutes of artificial auroras that would be visible in Hawaii. One unintended consequence of that mission was the damaging of seven satellites in Earth's orbit due to the massive amounts of radiation released by the atmospheric 1.4 megaton explosion. Now we're getting into the real reason for all of the modern-day security, secrecy, and protection measures in place. Since the early 50s, nuclear, atomic, and hydrogen warheads were tested by the U.S. military. Several of those were tested on Johnson Island. All rockets that carry these have highly complex guidance systems. That's how we're able to launch a rocket straight into the atmosphere rather than accidentally hitting California. As you might imagine, we don't get everything right the first time, and several of these incidents of nuclear catastrophe happened on Johnson Island. Occasionally, these missiles show signs of getting off track due to failure of their guidance systems, at which point the range safety officials abort the mission as early as possible 
to limit the amount of damage to civilian areas should that missile go completely off track. That's exactly what happened to the Thor missile test named Fishbowl. This series of tests had no less than four failures, all of which were intentional abortions by officers in charge of the missile tests. At least one of these tests was known as Bluegill, and it carried an active warhead. After 10 minutes of flight, the radar technicians lost the missile, and the test was canceled. Aborting the missile with a live warhead mid-flight resulted in a total contamination of Johnson Island and the surrounding areas with weapons-grade plutonium and americium, which both are some of the most radioactive and toxic substances known to mankind. Plutonium has a half-life of 24,000 years and is one of the most deadly things on the entire planet. It is a carcinogenic and only takes a fraction of a gram inhaled into the lungs to cause cancer. This element can linger in a human body for more than 50 years before being processed out. Plutonium in the environment is also extremely dangerous as well because particles of plutonium found in the island of Johnson can be carried by both water and air. The first bluegill test did not contaminate the island directly, but rather indirectly as the missile detonated in the air and then fell south of the island a bit. However, there were three other missiles that also exploded on the island directly. In 1962, Starfish, Bluegill Prime, and Bluegill Double Prime all failed and left weapons-grade plutonium and americium all over the island. The contamination was directly deposited on the island, the launch pad, the lagoon, and the beach, and will leave the area completely contaminated for thousands of years. Starfish was the first to contaminate the island on June 20th, 1962, and the rocket carrying a 1.45 megaton warhead lost its engine 59 seconds after its launch. The range safety officials sent a destruct signal at 65 seconds, which effectively killed the missile without causing a nuclear detonation. However, it had already reached an altitude of 6.6 miles straight up from Johnson Island when the destruct signal hit. The warhead exploded, but did not cause a nuclear detonation, and large pieces of plutonium contaminated the island as the missile fell back and onto Johnson Island, including the warhead, the booster, the rocket, the engine, the nuclear re-entry vehicles, and various other missile parts. Additional wreckage was also found on Sand Island as well. The second dramatic failure was Bluegill Prime. This incident caused the most amount of contamination because the engine failed immediately and the missile was destroyed on the launch pad. This resulted in the destruction of the launch pad and destroyed the launch complex and then the fires burned all throughout the night. Radioactive debris from the missile spread across the island by fire, smoke, and wind. All launches were paused until cleanup efforts were made and launch areas could be rebuilt. It took three months of repairs and decontamination efforts before tests could resume. In order to meet tight deadlines, the U.S. military sent troops from the Army and they brought them to Johnson Island to aid in a rapid cleanup. They manually scrubbed the revetments and launch pad, dug up coral, and dumped the radioactive trash straight into the lagoon. More than 550 drums of radioactive material were dumped into the lagoon at Johnson Island. This had disastrous effects for the marine life, as you can imagine. Additionally, the entire top portion of the island was scraped with a bulldozer, and it was also pushed into the lagoon. And this was done to make a makeshift ramp in order for the hauling off of other contaminated material to be loaded onto ships. Then, they were taken to deep water and sunk. 
it is estimated that 10% of the radioactive plutonium from the missiles was present in this ramp. So then they had to take measures to deal with the ramp after they were done with the other cleanup. Dredging equipment was brought in to cover the ramp with uncontaminated soil from Sand Island. A 25-acre landfill is now present on the island, which sits directly on top of radioactive soil and debris from the lagoon. Between 1963 and 1964, that whole area went under renovation, and the lagoon was again dredged and used to expand the island, thus recontaminating everything all over again. In 1963, there was a third missile failure called Blue Guild Double Prime. This rocket failed at 109,000 feet and contaminated the island even farther. Despite all the errors in testing, Congress agreed to continue the above-ground testing of nuclear missiles on Johnson Island until 1993, at which point all funding was removed for Johnson Island testing facilities. From 1962 to 1975, the island housed several anti-satellite missions as well. In 1965, a satellite and missile tracking system was installed on Sand Island, and it was called, quote, SPADATS, or Space Detection and Tracking System. As if nuclear fallout wasn't enough, in 1965, scientists found a new virus living on board an army tugboat that was operating on Johnson Island Atoll. Researchers from the Smithsonian initially found this virus, which was soon weaponized by the military. The effort to weaponize this flu-like virus that was found on the tugboat would be called Pacific Ornithological Observation Project, or POOP for short. This title was changed for obvious reasons. Later on, Johnson Island Atoll would be used to launch chemical and biological attacks against mock Navy vessels 100 miles away. This would be done by the Deseret Test Center during Project Shad under the authority of Project 112. These series of attacks consisted of Agent UL, Agent OU, and Agent BG. More can be found about these online, but trust me when I say that they're nasty and you don't want to be anywhere near this stuff. During Project Shad, Bacillus globigli was used to simulate biological warfare agents such as anthrax, because at that time it was considered to be a contaminant with little health consequences to humans, compared to anthrax that is. However, it is also now considered to be a human pathogen deadly to people. Nine tests were done with this agent by ships and aircraft retrofitted to spray live pathogens on ground, Navy, and human targets. Maybe because the island was already an environmental nightmare and a radioactive wasteland, Congress then decided to redefine the island as a storage facility in 1970. The Army moved chemical weapons off the island of Okinawa and transferred them to a 41-acre area on Johnson Island. By 1971, the atoll holds 6% of the world's chemical and biological weapons arsenal. Some of the weapons to be found on Johnson Island include rockets, mines, artillery, and bulk one-ton canisters filled with sarin, Agent VX, vomiting agents, blister agents, mustard gas, and chemical weapons from West Germany. These World War II-era weapons were previously held on the Solomon Islands as well. In 1990, the military completed the transfer of all chemical and biological weapons formerly stored in West Germany. Now that the Russian threat was over due to the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Germans wanted nothing to do with the stockpiles of the stuff and wanted them out of the country for good. 
I can't say I blame them. Perhaps the best-known weapon to be housed at Johnson Island is Agent Orange. Operation Pacer Ivy was a mission that started in 1972 in order to remove all the Agent Orange from South Vietnam and Gulfport, Mississippi, and they would be transferred to Johnson Island for storage and destruction. The barrels were stored out in the open on the northwest corner of the island, and under operation named Pacer HO, the barrels were destroyed aboard a Dutch incinerator ship called MT Volcano. In 1977, the EPA estimated that 1.8 million gallons of Agent Orange were stored on Johnson Island. Due to primitive storage conditions and lack of oversight, many of the barrels began leaking and the island storage area and lagoon are now contaminated with Agent Orange. Finally, the world, and eventually the U.S. government, became aware of the dangers of the chemical, biological, and radioactive toxins present on storage facilities in Johnson Island, and in 1981, efforts to clean up the mess started. In 1985, Johnson Island Atoll Chemical Agent Disposal System, or JCADS, was installed, and by 1990, the official tests were done. This would start the official destruction period of all of the hazardous material on Johnson Island. The work was completed by the year 2000, and the plant itself was demolished in 2003. And the island is now considered to be, quote, environmentally remediated, unquote. The island is still off limits for good reason. It's not somewhere you want a vacation to anytime soon. Well, there you have it, guys. America's Chernobyl. Johnson Island, a little tiny place in the South Pacific, you definitely don't want to go there. It's sunny, it's beautiful, there's palm trees, but there's also nuclear radiation and chemical warfare contamination. No wonder that when David was there, he had to dress in full mop gear. To this date, there is still considered to be plutonium in the area, and the Air Force owns the island for, quote, plutonium cleanup purposes, unquote, as we mentioned before. This is definitely not a place you want to go. And there are other islands just like it, believe it or not. Johnson Island is not the only place where we have tested nuclear missiles and things of that nature. There's a couple other in the Marshall Island and Gilbert Island chains as well. If you want to learn more about this kind of stuff, I will eventually put more stories out just like this. But in the meantime, you can look up an island called Kwajalein. Kwajalein is an island we took over in World War II that the U.S. military still owns and operates radar systems. We launched nuclear missiles from Vandenberg Air Force Base, without warheads, to the best of my knowledge, and we shoot them straight at Kwajalein, at which point the range systems there will pick up the guidance systems and make sure everything is still calibrated. It's pretty interesting. There are shipwrecks there. There is one called the Prince Eugene, which was one of the ships that sunk the U.S., not the U.S., but the HMS Bismarck in World War II, which was a ship that was considered to be unsinkable. After the war, the United States military towed the Prince Eugene to Kwajalein, at which point we blew it up with an atom bomb. The shipwreck is still parked on the edge of Kwajalein on what is called Rat Island, which is just a small island off the coast of Kwajalein in the atoll. It's a beautiful place. I know a guy who spent four years there as a contract firefighter, and he became a master scuba diver. And he dove on the shipwreck of the Prince Eugene, and also there's several Japanese Zeros and American planes sunk in the, um, in the lagoon there as well. There's plenty of cool stories about that. You can Google the island, and you can see that it's a beautiful place, 
and there's plenty of pictures people have taken from the sunken Japanese Zeros and also the sunken battleships nearby. I plan on doing an episode about that in the somewhat near future, but there's a couple other things I need to get to first. This concludes the first in the After Action Reports, and I hope that you have enjoyed it. If you have, be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share it with your friends. If you do that, you'll help the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. Also, if you wouldn't mind, consider being a donor. You can donate as little as $1 one time or a recurring monthly donation. If you do that, you'll help the podcast grow. I'll invest in new equipment to bring you guys a better product, and I will give a portion of that straight back to homeless veterans via the Passageways LTD organization, which helps homeless veterans get off the streets once and for all. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Patriot Media Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please subscribe, rate, review, share with your friends, and consider being a donor. If you donate to the show, it helps me grow the podcast to reach more people just like you. And also, I will give 10% of each donation back to homeless veterans. Thanks for listening.